Well, good morning. Uh, this is uh, a rather surreal experience. Uh, and, and just to give some of you a context, there are all these worlds coming together and colliding for me this morning. We have a number of people here back from our church plant days at Redemption from 2010 to 2016, and then, of course, people from First Baptist, and, uh, and then, of course, people from the Mount now. So, um, man, it's, uh, it's a crazy, crazy to see so many faces, so many surprises that are here as well. What a joy. Well, let me pray, and uh, then we will get into our text. Our Father, this is your word that we come to now, and we want to see Jesus in it. Open our eyes to see him, and change us today to be more like him. For the glory of your name we pray. Amen. Well, in a world of superstars and platform builders and influencers, it is rare for an individual to graciously step aside or pass the baton to the next generation. More often we see rivalries and gossip and petty insults. Sometimes it makes you think of the animal world. Think about it. In pretty much all the best nature shows, there's always some scene where it's the the challenger coming in to try to knock off and take over from the dominant male, right? And there's this battle. Somehow National Geographic has built a whole video empire on this, right? The, the, the dominant male lion is there, and this challenger comes trotting in, and they have this ferocious fight, and we all want to watch it, right? It's incredibly entertaining. But over and over again, whether it's a male lion or it's an elk or it's, it's a, a superstar sports athlete or it's a pastor or whoever, our tendency in the flesh is towards competition and rivalry, towards striving to stay on top, towards grasping after supremacy and domination. A scary reality is that in our flesh we even do this with Jesus. Some of us have spent our whole lives trying to hold on to our own control of life, pushing Jesus away. And even if we're Christians, we still battle with this tendency to functionally push Jesus aside so we can take the central place in life. On our own, we want Jesus to stay out of the way or maybe take a role as our assistant. All of this makes this passage this morning such a breath of fresh air. It's so beautiful what we see here. So if you would turn to John chapter 3, we're going to be looking at John 3 verses 22 through 30 this morning. If you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles under the chair in front of you, they're the black books. John 3 verses 22 through 30, let's read it together, let's take in this breath of fresh air. This is a passage describing my biblical hero, John the Baptist. 
in some of his words. Look at John 3, verse 22. It says this, After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim because the water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from a heaven. You yourselves bear, wit- bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. This is the word of the Lord. In verses 22 to 26, the scene is kind of set for us. And what we see here is that really John the Baptist's ministry and Jesus' ministry are kind of running in parallel at this point. They're both calling for repentance. They're both announcing that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. They're both baptizing people. They're both ministering in the same area of the Jordan River. It's the kind of thing that almost naturally leads to comparisons and competition. And this seems to be what is on the disciples' minds, John's disciples' minds, in verses, verse 26, where they say, look, everybody's going to Jesus. He's, bad. He's doing the same thing you're doing, and everybody's going to him. There's a sense of competition, it seems, comparison. Think about how this would play out in our modern context, maybe among politicians or music artists at times. John, in our modern context, you you would expect to see maybe John responding with all kinds of criticism towards Jesus, accusations, or maybe he'd go on a long rant on how amazing he is and and how if if people were smart, they would be coming to him. Or perhaps his team would come up with a marketing strategy to, to kind of grab the attention again and maybe some kind of stunt that would get his followers back. And so what we find here is completely counterintuitive, countercultural, counterflesh. It's beautiful. And if you're a believer, deep down, this is what you want. To be able to say, as, as, as John ends up saying in verse 30, he must increase, I must decrease. So this morning, we want to dig into this passage and, and begin to move towards having the same heart as John same posture as we see in John. So there are three truths that we're going to talk about that are going to help move us towards that. The first is this, God decides our role, not us. Look at John's statement in verse 27. So they make this statement, look, everybody's going to him, and John answers, verse 27, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. 
John's statement here is broad. It's kind of a truism. You can't receive anything unless God gives it. Notice how comprehensive he is. Not even one thing. If you have it, it's because God gave it to you. You might think of James 1, where James speaks of the idea that every, every good and perfect gift is from above, from God. Now, there are a couple implications of this that, that kind of flow from this broad statement. The simple broad statement is everything comes from God. It's a, you don't have anything else is given by God. There's a couple of implications that flow from this. First of all, it means that anything we have is a result of grace. We don't deserve it. We didn't earn it. It's a gift. First Corinthians 4, Paul is, Paul is rebuking the Corinthians for their boasting in their spiritual gifts. I have this gift, and look at me. And, and, and Paul wants to calm down their pride, kind of, kind of lower them by pointing out that anything they have is a gift. He's making the same point that John does. But listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. It says this, For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If, you, if then you received it, why do you boast as though you did not receive it? In other words, what do you have that you didn't receive? Well, nothing. Everything you have, you received. And here, John is referring, it seems, particularly to his ministry. Any ministry, any, any service in God's kingdom that he had was a gift from God. It was given by God. He didn't earn it. He didn't achieve it. He didn't create it. It was a gift from God that John had a place, a role in God's mission and kingdom. And what that means is that John isn't bothered by losing followers. He's not bothered that his role is fading. Whatever part he got to play, for however long it was, was a gift. It was grace. Imagine, you know, you loved acting. Maybe you acted in your middle school play or something. I know there's some of you out there that, that are still around from the days where you moved here to try to make it in Hollywood and whatever, right? But imagine you loved acting, and uh, suddenly you, you got an invite from Broadway to be in, in a play, in, in Pantages, right? And, and all, you, all the experience you had was middle school, right? And, and, and yet you get this call, and you love to act, and as you get this call, you recognize that this call, however small your part is, it's a gift. You didn't deserve it. You don't have a resume that would get you there. It's a gift that you have any part to play, any role in this production. In fact, you're thankful for any part. You probably you're good with a small part, right? That's us. Each breath we take, each role we fill, each opportunity for ministry, each chance we get to reflect Christ in life, it's a gift to us. It's His grace that we have a part to play. There's a second implication that flows out of this reality that, that, that ministry, in this case, is a gift from God. And that is, as the giver, God has a right in His sovereignty to give whatever part He wants to whoever, right? Right? If you go back to that analogy of a play, the one producing the play gets to choose who plays what part. 
He's in charge of that. Imagine you wrecked your car and your dad went out and got you a new one. It was your fault. You're blown away. That's pure grace. That's what we talked about with the first implication. But if that's the case, you're not complaining to your dad and saying, I want it this color and this model and this year, right? He's the one giving you the car. You just are like thankful that some, it actually runs maybe, right? But that's kind of what we do at times, right? Like, God, I know I need your grace, but I want it to look like this. I want it to be this color. And I want it to be right now, God, right? <laughs> the reality is, is that if we are just recipients of whatever God chooses to give us, we are thankful for whatever that is, whatever that looks like. And that's John's attitude, right? He said, look, I got this whole thing from God. If he wants to change it and change its shape, and, and if he's kind of fading me out right now, hey, he's God. He's the one giving this gift. This is hard to swallow when we have expectations, isn't it? When we have ideas of what would be best, when we're pretty sure we know how things should work out. And if you know the story, that would have been tempting for John, right? He had seen immense popularity and success. Immense. People were flocking to him. In fact, people were wondering, are you the Messiah? That's how popular John was. That's how big his ministry was in Israel. And yet, here he is just saying, hey, if it's fading now, if my time is done, like, that's God's prerogative. He, he's in charge here. All I've had is just a gift. Christian, life is probably not going to go how you dreamed it. It, it. it may look more like failure than success at times. It may look more like weakness than strength. It may look like the background more than the limelight. It it may look more like struggle than ease. And for me, that's been ministry at times. But I want to be like John. I want to be able to bow my head and humbly accept the ministry God's given me. To remember that He's the author, I'm not. I want to be able to not just accept, I want to be able to rejoice in the reality that it's pure grace that I'm even in this story, that I have a role, that I'm God's child, that I get to serve His church, that forever, however long He has for me, I get to point to Jesus. It's a gift. Whatever I have had, whatever I have now, it's a gift from God. Praise Him. So first, ministry is a gift from God, not us. Whatever role we have is His decision, not ours. Second, Jesus is the Savior, not us. Look at verse 28. Verse 28, John goes on, he says, You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before Him. So John is recalling what he has said previously, and previously, when people asked, are you, John, are you the Messiah? You're, you're incredibly power, powerful in your, your ministry and, and popular. Maybe you're the Messiah. And John had said this. He had said, look, I'm not the Christ. 
It's interesting where he starts, isn't it? That he doesn't start with who he is, he starts with who he isn't. Sometimes that's where we need to start, remembering who we are not. Listen, do you know that you're not the main character in the story of what God's doing in the world? You're not the center of the universe, right? Sometimes we say that to our kids. I don't know if you ever say that, but it's one of my favorite lines to my kids. You're not the center of the universe, right? Um, But we forget that, don't we? We laugh, but it's a real issue. We tend to think the world revolves around us, that we should be all-powerful, that we are all-knowing, that we could solve everybody's problems, that what people really need is our wisdom, that if people just listen to us, everything would be okay, right? Like, if, if the government would just take our ideas, everything, all the problems would be solved, right? Or if our family member would just listen to our advice, right? Or sometimes with our kids we do this. Boy, if I could just force into them, just like cram into their heads all of my wisdom, my kids would be perfect. Right? Far too often I've seen this in myself. I want to be needed. kind of think I can be the Savior. And, and man, that's such a temptation for pastors. People need us, we think. No, they need Jesus is who they need. They need Jesus. We need to take the step John does here to recognize who we are not. We are not Christ. We are not the Savior. He is. On the flip side, notice how John affirms who he is. He does have a role to play. He's not the Christ. Instead, what does he say? He says, I'm the one who goes before. I've been sent before him, he says at the end of verse 28. He's probably referencing back to what he said about the the prophecy in Isaiah. And there's this prophecy in Isaiah of of a messenger who will go before the coming Savior. And it's a picture of a messenger going before a king through the land, right? So so this messenger would go and travel ahead. Hey, the king's coming. we got to get everybody ready for the king. So this messenger who would arrive in town and begin to get things ready and make sure the roads were cleared, He's not the king, and he's very clear about that. But he does have a role. He's preparing the way. He's getting things ready. And that's John. He's not the king. He's preparing people for the king. And Christian, that's us. We're not the Savior. We're not the king. We're trying to get people ready for the king. We're trying to point people to the king. Or you could look at the image, the illustration that Jesus, John uses in the next verse. Verse 29, it says, The one who has the bride is the bridegroom, the friend of the bridegroom, who stands and hears him, rejoices at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. So what's the picture here? This bridegroom is what we would just think of as the groom, right? The friend of the bridegroom, or the groom, would be like the best man, Right? Now think about the groom and the best man. The best man does not step in front and take the bride's arm and recite the vows and kiss the bride, right? That's not the best man's job. That would be a little awkward, right? What does the best man do? The best man tries to get things ready. He makes sure... He makes sure that the groom is, is set, right? Everybody's where they need to be. He helps organize. He, he sets the stage. 
In a sense, he might even be the matchmaker, right? He's ready to step aside. He's ready to, hey, look at, look at him. Bride, you're coming to him, not to me. You're coming to him. That's the whole point of what that friend of the bridegroom is seeking to do. And that's us, Christian. Our role is not to be people's Savior. Our role is to point them to the Savior. Our role is not to be the end-all relationship for anyone. Our our role is to point to the one who is the end-all. Now, this, this is incredibly freeing. If you've ever tried to be people's Savior, it's rather crushing. If you've ever tried to be your kid's Savior, it's rather crushing. Or your spouse's Savior, it's crushing. You can't do it. But when we can step back and say, I can't solve all their problems. I can't fix things. I can't save people. It's free. It takes the pressure off of us to have all the answers and to be everything for people. We can simply point people to Jesus. Listen, the best advice, the best help we can give people is Jesus. It's the best thing I could tell you. Go to Him. Seek Him. Come to know Him. Pour out your heart to Him. Learn Him. Trust Him. Follow Him. It's the best thing I could tell you. It's the best news I got is what Jesus has done and what He can do to change your life. You can't go wrong by pointing people to Jesus. And the other great thing about this is it's doable, right? If you're a Christian, you can do this. You might not have all the answers to all of your children's questions or all of your neighbor's skeptical doubts, but you can tell them, hey, look to Jesus. Learn about Jesus. Open your Bible and ask the question, who is Jesus and what did he come to? That's what I tell people. I know I'm supposed to have all these incredible answers as a pastor, but Basically, when I talk to a non-Christian, lots of times I'm just trying to say, hey, you know what? Take time, read the Bible, and ask, who is Jesus, and what did he come to do? You can do that. We can all do that. As we counsel our friends, as we parent our children, as we talk to our neighbors, we can all point them to Jesus. We're not the Savior. Jesus is. So let's stop trying to be Christ for people. Let's stop trying to force them to see the truth or change. Let's stop trying to save them. That's not our role. We are not the Christ. And we know this with other things, don't we? If you come to me and you say, I've got this issue with my tooth. It's hurting a lot and it's really sensitive. I don't say, well, open it up and let me get out my tools and I'll look at it for you. I'd, if, if you know me at all, I, I'd be like, uh, that's okay. Well, I know about this dentist over here, right? And he knows what he's, he's actually got a license and knows what he's doing, right? Same with the car. Like, um, I can do a couple little things, but I, you, you need to go to a mechanic, right? Or, or, or cooking. Uh, I, I'm not a cook. I can, like, make a hot dog or something, but... But I know a cook, and I can tell you it's going to taste good, right? I'm not the Savior. I can't, I can't take away your sins. I can't, I can't give you 
that sense of purpose that fills your life. I can't give you, I can't give you new life. I can't change you. But Jesus, he can. He can. I am not the Savior. Jesus is. Number three now. Joy is in Jesus being magnified, not us. Look again at verse 29. It says, the one who has the bridegroom, bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. It's astounding. John is not simply resigned to take a back seat, like hanging his head and giving him to the inevitable. He's not like this washed-up NBA player who finally gives up and like, I guess i got to let the younger guys play, but... But back in the day, I was, I was way better than they are now, right? Like, that's what us old guys do. Um, boy, you should have seen me when I was playing. I was way better than you, right? It, it, there's not that sense of nostalgia, you know, competition kind of retroactively. There's not that sense of, of despair and giving up. No, no, there's joy here. This is what I wanted. This is the best possible scenario. Again, this illustration of the bridegroom and the friend of the bridegroom is so helpful here. Have you ever had that joy of seeing two friends that you thought were like made for each other and they come together and you're like, yes, this is, what, this is what I dreamed about. And you see them fall in love and eventually get married. That's John. You, you can't contain how happy he is. To know Jesus and then to see him arrive on the scene and to see people go to Jesus, that, that completes, literally fills up John's joy. Nothing makes John happier than to see Jesus become bigger and bigger in people's hearts and lives. That's what he wants. And he doesn't care if that means, as it does in his case, that he becomes smaller and smaller. That's okay. As he says in verse 30, he must increase, but I must decrease. John says this and he's happy about it. He knows this is how it should be. This is where the fulfillment comes. It's a little bit like watching a film where it's so clear how it should go, where, where the plot should go, right? Not in a corny, like, hallmark predictable way, right? But in a, in a way that, that fulfills, that brings all the different threads together, and you watch this film, and, and in the end it all comes together, and you're like, yes, what a story. And it, it all fits, right? That's John. John knows that this is where the story should go. This is where he wants it to go. He knows that this is what it's all about, is Jesus being exalted. And seeing it come together, seeing Jesus take center stage, brings him incredible, overflowing joy. Is this us? Are, are we able to say, like, God decides what our role is in life and in ministry, not us. Are we okay if, if there's not a ton of visible success in our lives or our ministry or our parenting? 
that God decides something else for us besides our dreams? Are we okay that we're not the Savior and Jesus is? Do we find joy in the reality that Jesus is increasing, even as maybe life gets harder for us as, as, as we look less successful or there's more suffering? Or, are we okay with that? Now, here's, here, here I think is the key to all of that, because you, you say, well, eh, I'd like to be there, but I'm really not. <laughs> like, it's a struggle, right? What's the key? To, how does John get here? You know how John gets here? He gets here by seeing who Jesus is. If we're going to take on this perspective where we're okay with us decreasing, and we find joy in Jesus increasing, we have to see Jesus as John did. Let me, let me take you back to John 1 to see that. Just, I think, four statements from John 1 that John makes about Jesus. John 1.15. These are the things that enabled him to be okay with all of this. John bore witness about him, and he cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. Now, that could be a little confusing, but here's what he's saying there. John is saying, look, Jesus appeared on the earthly scene after me, right? But the reality is he existed before me. John is recognizing and declaring that Jesus didn't originate in Mary's womb as merely another human being. He existed eternally with the Father. He was God in the flesh. And John recognizes that this means that Jesus holds a position of absolute supremacy and complete authority. That he ranks above John. He ranks above all. He is King of Lo kings and Lord of lords. He is the eternal God. And so John says, I'm okay with stepping back when I see and understand that that's who Jesus is. I'm not going to compete with Jesus. A few verses later, John 1, verse 23. Quoting John, he said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now, this is the prophecy that I refer we referenced earlier, we looked at. But notice that one, make straight the way of the Lord. John is saying, I'm the guy who came to make straight the way for the Lord. Now, in the Hebrew of the Old Testament, in Isaiah, the word Lord there is the word Yahweh. John is recognizing that Jesus is God incarnate, the covenant God of Israel, existing in incomparable glory, full of steadfast love, and here to rescue his people and reign as king. When John sees that that's Jesus, this is Yahweh the Lord coming for his people, John's okay with stepping back. He's rejoicing that he's arrived, that God has come to rescue his people. A couple verses later, John 1, 26, says, John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one who you do not know. 
even who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. Look at that last phrase. The strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. He's saying something more about Jesus than himself here. Jesus saw who Jesus was in his infinite might and unrivaled supremacy, his supreme worth. And he says, I'm okay stepping back. I'm not even worthy to be in the picture here. I rejoice that he is taking the place he deserves. Two verses later, John 1, 29. The next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John sees and recognizes Jesus as the ultimate and final Passover Lamb. The substitutionary sacrifice that sinners needed. We couldn't take away our own sins. Anything we would ever do to try would just make the pile higher and the guilt deeper. We can't take away our own sins. You can't take away your kids' sins or anyone else's sins or your own sins. But Jesus came to take away the sins of the world, the sin of His people from every tribe, nation, and tongue. Friend, have you seen Jesus like John did? Incarnate, infinite, eternal God. Yahweh Himself in the flesh to rescue His people in covenant love. The one who is on high the one who came as a lamb to give himself as a sacrifice to take away the sins of the world. Have you seen him like that? If you have never seen Jesus as John did, our prayer is that you would today. Come to him. Come with your sin and your mess and give up your attempts to push him aside and kind of take his place. It's not about you. Come to Him and give up and ask Him to save you and make you His. He will. He promised that if you will come to Him, He will not cast you out. So come. And for those of you who have seen Jesus, as John did, who have come to Him, let's keep looking to Him. Let's keep coming to Him. Let's keep leaning into the freedom and purpose and joy of us fading into the background as He becomes bigger. That's what I want. I'm okay if I'm not a big deal. I want to be okay with that. (laughs) I want to be okay if people don't think I'm important, if if my life looks like a failure to some. I want to be okay if I decrease as long as Jesus is magnified. As long as He is exalted, as long as He increases, it will be worth it. It will be a gift of grace. It will be a joy if Jesus increases. That's what I want. And Christian, that's what you want. Let's seek that together. Pray with me.
Our Father, you know how short we fall. You know how easily ourselves get into this and our pride creeps in. Forgive us and cleanse us because of Christ Jesus. And oh God, we just ask for the grace that our hearts would be so filled up with Jesus, we would not care what happens to us or our reputations. Give us grace that what we care about is to see Jesus magnified, to see Him increased. We need Your grace and Your Spirit for this. We need Your resurrection power for this. Thank You for this time. In Jesus' precious name we pray, amen.